Good morning. It is great to see all of y'all here this morning. Uh, it's an exciting morning because we do have Luke Henry. Unfortunately, his family isn't able to be with us this morning. We're excited to have Luke here. And of course, his first Sunday, he gets to start with doing the announcements. I'm glad he introduced himself so you didn't think Braden just got a different haircut or something. But we're excited to finally have them here and being in town. Um, it's good to have them have them around. If you haven't been with us, just for you to know, we're in the middle of a Giving for His Glory campaign. Now, what that is, is we are seeking to renovate our worship center, and we're asking our church to consider how the Lord might be calling them to give above and beyond towards renovating uh, the worship center. We're doing a three-year, asking people to give three-year commitments or upfront gifts. This is all culminating with our celebration event that is this upcoming Sunday night, and as Luke said, please sign up for that if you have not yet so we can have accurate numbers. But while we're doing this as well, we're going through a stewardship series, and we are in week four of our stewardship series. And in order for you to understand uh, where we're at, we need to backtrack a little bit and let you know what we've talked about, because each of these, the goal is that each of these sermons builds on the last. So week one, whenever we got together, we talked about how we are stewards of a gracious God. We talked about how God has the patent on everything because he created everything. He's the rightful owner, he's the gracious giver, he's the abundant provider, everything is God's. And we saw how Jesus himself is the one who says, we either worship God with our money or we worship our money. Matthew 6 doesn't give us a third option. We either worship with our money or we worship with our money. But then the next week we looked at 1 Chronicles 29 and we saw how David makes this startling claim to God that God, we are just gracious that you allow us the opportunity to give because you're worthy of everything. All of it is yours. And we talked about how incredible it is that even giving itself is an act of grace. God could command and demand all of it if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He chooses to allow us to be stewards of his creation, which from that we were able to deduce that we either worship God with what he has blessed us with, or we worship what he has blessed us with. Then last week, whenever we came together, we we began to ask the question, well, what happens whenever we don't honor God with our giving? What happens whenever we don't honor God with what he's blessed us with? And we looked at Haggai chapter 1, a sermon titled Priority Problems, and we saw that whenever we don't honor God with what he's blessed us with, the issue is our priorities are out of line. It's very easy for us, uh, especially with the world that we're in, to pull back and focus on ourselves versus focusing on obedience to Christ, but God calls us to obey him. So we walked through the question of, is giving to the Lord a priority of yours? And we explained how this matters so much because the way we spend our money is the greatest indicator of who and what we worship. And so the plan from this was actually to go to 2 Corinthians and look at examples of faithful giving. It's 2 Corinthians 8 this week and then 2 Corinthians 9 next week. But I had an unfortunate event happen in my, uh, with, with my grandfather. He passed away, and so I had to go back home uh, this, this past week. And so between that and as I prayed about it, the Lord said, I'm not done with Haggai chapter 1 just yet. And so what I realized is last week as we walked through Haggai 1, I showed you all the problems, the issues, God rebuking his people. But what we didn't look like, what we didn't look at was their response to God. And so this week we're going to be back in the book of Haggai looking at what happens when God's people respond to him. Last week was what happens whenever we disobey This week is what happens whenever we obey Christ. So if you would, turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. Again, it's in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Obviously, I say that jokingly. It's an obscure book in the Old Testament. Go to the book of Matthew and go back three books, and you'll find the book of Haggai. And we'll be looking at Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, as we close out this first chapter of the book of Haggai. 
Now, before we jump in, because this is in the middle of the story, I'm going to be give you a little bit more information than normal, just as by way of introduction, because you have to understand what we've walked through to understand what's coming. So just as a reminder, God has chosen his people from Abram, Abraham, and his chosen people are the Israelites. If you remember, the Israelites were God's people. They were in Egypt for 400 years. God brings his people out of Egypt into the land that he promised to them, called the promised land. And he says, as long as you obey me, you will flourish in this land. But the problem is, is they didn't obey him. Even as God reached out to them through the prophets, they didn't obey him. And so he tells them, I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to remove you from the promised land and send you into exile into Babylon. And so they go to Babylon, and, but God tells them while they're in Babylon, I'm going to bring you back and restore Jerusalem, restore my land, bring you back to the promised land. And so we see that God's people are brought back. And as God's people come back, one of their first priorities is to rebuild the temple. And this is a big deal because the temple is literally where God's presence dwells among them. He tells them in Deuteronomy that my temple is where my presence will be. If you want to be in my presence, go to the temple. So they move back to the promised land, and they begin to rebuild the temple. They get two years in. They build the whole foundation of the temple. They have a big celebration. Then after the celebration, people become discouraged because it's not as big as the old temple used to be. They become discouraged because people that were around them who were already living in the area were starting to oppress them and keep them and threaten them not to finish the work on the temple. So the building stops. No temple, just a foundation. 16 years pass, and you enter the book of Haggai. 16 years pass, and they haven't laid a finger on the temple of God. But get this, they rebuild their homes, they rebuild their city, they rebuild everything, but the temple of God remains in ruins, just simply a foundation. Remember I said Haggai, the book of Haggai is a lot like an alarm clock. Not a person in this room likes an alarm clock, but what an alarm clock does is it wakes us up the reality. We need to get up and we need to get going. It wakes us up to be productive. And Haggai is like an alarm clock to God's people, waking them up to the issues that were around them that they obviously could not see for 16 years as they neglected the work of God. Just by way of summary, last week we looked at the first 11 verses and we saw that God sounded the alarm on four things for them. I'll have them for you on the screen. God sounded the alarm on their misplaced priorities. Remember, God says that you say it's not time to rebuild the temple, but it's odd. You live in your comfortable, adorned houses, and yet it's not time to rebuild my house. God says your priorities are off base. Then God sounded the alarm on their contentment problems. If you remember, it says that they ate, but they never were satisfied. They drank, but they weren't satisfied. They they put on clothes, but they were never warm. Even what they looked for for contentment, they could not find contentment or satisfaction in things. Third, God sounded the alarm on their futile efforts. Remember, whenever they saw the issues that were in front of them, they said, let's plant more crops, let's earn more wages. And God says, I'm the one who's bringing a drought amongst you. I'm the reason why. The second money comes in, it feels like it's coming into a bag with holes and it's going out the other end. It's because of me that this is happening to you, because of your misplaced priorities, which leads to the last point, is that God sounded the alarm on their greatest need. He said, prioritize me, obey me. If you remember, it was so simple. He said, go up to the hill, cut some wood, come back down and build my temple that I may be glorified, that I may take pleasure in it. And that's where we ended last week. And this week we're going to look at how do they respond and what happens whenever God's people respond in obedience. Look with me again, Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It says, then Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. The title of the sermon this morning is Experiencing God. Experiencing God. And what I'm proposing, what I hope you will see from this text is this. When we obey the Lord and follow his will, we will uniquely experience him because it is through obedience that he reveals himself and works in us. When we obey the Lord and follow his will, we will uniquely experience him because it is through obedience that he reveals himself and works in us. Now I want to show you this briefly. I want to show you there are two responses, and I want to show you what happens when God's people obey. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, please help us be reminded that this is the word of God. Whenever your word is open, it is you who is speaking. Father, help us see that. Give us eyes to see, <clears throat> give us ears to hear, give us hearts to accept what you have for us this morning. Father, and as always, please put your words in my mouth, speak through me, and keep my words out of yours. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So first, let's look at how they respond. The first thing we see is this. The people respond in obedience. It's very clear. The people respond to the rebuke from God, God showing them their misplaced priorities, the issues that were in their life. They respond with obedience. Look again at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. What we see is it begins with the governor, Zerubbabel, the high priest, Joshua, and with all the people. They decide we are going to obey the Lord. Now this might seem trivial. Okay, they obey God, but I don't think you understand. This is a massive deal. You see, whenever the first temple was built, all of the materials were already provided for Solomon whenever they began to build the temple. David had made preparation. The people had made preparation. They had all of the materials. What you maybe don't realize is if you look in 1 Kings 5, 13 through 16, you can just mark it down. We're not going to turn there. But it says that Solomon hired 180,000 hired workers to build the temple. Think about that again. They had all the materials available. They had 180,000 workers who built the temple for them. That's not the case this time. This is God's people who have their own families to take care of, who have their own ways that they make their money, saying we are volunteering to do it. God has called us to do it. We will do it. With all the materials, 180,000 workers, it took God's people seven years to build the previous temple. I want you to think about how long it took this group of people just to build the foundation. Two years, just to build the foundation. What they're saying is, God, no matter what this costs us, no matter what this takes, we will obey you. 
Friends, what does God desire in your life? It's very, very simple. Obedience. In some ways, it's so simple. God's desire is obedience. His desire is that we would hear him and we would follow him. God does not desire a crowd. He does not desire attenders. He does not desire listeners. He desires people who want to listen and obey his word. You've heard me say this numerous times. The Bible is not just a book of information. It is a book that is meant for transformation. It's meant to get into our lives. We're called to get in it until it gets in us and transforms us. And when we obey, friends, that's whenever we experience the word of God. You can think of it like this. A lot of us have recipe books. Nobody ever flips through a recipe book and then walks away satisfied going, man, that was good. No, you flip through the recipe book, wine, to see what you need to cook it, how you need to cook it, how long you need to cook it. Then you get the materials, you make it, you bake it, you grill it, you do whatever, and then you experience it by eating it, right? Friends, the Bible is very similar. You don't come to it just to learn and then walk away and go, okay, I'm just going to go about my stuff. No, no, you take it in and you obey it and experience it in your life. There's much we can say about that, but let's move on. God desires his people to diligently do what he calls them to do. Notice what else. Notice the other response that they have. First is obedience. Now look at the very last sentence in verse 12. It says, and the people feared the Lord. So first, we see the people respond in obedience. Secondly, we see the people respond in fear. They responded in obedience. And they respond in fear. Now, it's important to note that fear has a dual meaning. Many of you know this, or maybe you've heard this. But if you see the word fear of being fearful of God or the fear of God, there's a dual role of that fear. One is literal fear, literal terror between a God who can do what he wants to do. He is overall, he is in control. There's a literal terror aspect of it. But then there's the other side, which is a reverential awe. An awestruckness, a humility of just the amazement of who God is. And what we see is the fear of the Lord came over them, and it helped them as they obeyed him. I want to ask the question, what generated this fear? Well, I want you to go back and look at verses 9 through 11, and just be reminded of what God said to them. Haggai 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, meaning their crops or their money, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors." What do you think generated this fear in these people is they recognized the struggle that they were dealing with was because they were being disobedient to God. They were reminded very vividly that God controls the weather. They were reminded very vividly that the reason money was coming in and was going out like it had a bag of holes or like it had holes in it was because they were not honoring God. Their comforts weren't comforting them because of God. Their efforts weren't making up for their lack of obedience to God, and God was the reason they were not content. So what really happened? Well, this fear sprang from what I would think is one thing. They became aware of God, an awareness of God. 
They became aware that God was in control. They became reminded that God was actively disciplining them for their disobedience. Now, this is key. An awareness of God and what he is doing is what led them to a proper biblical fear. You see, obedience and fear go hand in hand. If you fear God, you will obey him. And it's very rare that you are obeying God if you don't also fear him. A reverential awe, a recognition of who he is and what he can and will do. I want to tell it to you like this. God speaks a lot in his word about a parent and child relationship. You know, you've often heard it said there's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. That's true. God calls all people my sons and my daughters. And the relationship oftentimes is like that of a child and a parent which is good for all of us because all of us can relate to being a child of parents or a child of a caretaker. Now, have you ever disobeyed your parents before and they find out about it while you're in the middle of disobeying them? It's not necessarily a fun, fun thing, right? I often laugh with my kids because I can tell whenever our kids get quiet, oftentimes it seems like it's because they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, Right? And it's funny, if I ever walk into a room and I see our kids doing something they know they're not supposed to do, it's all of a sudden the room just changes, right? Their facial expression changes, everything changes very quickly. One of my favorite things to do is if I know or if I am going and looking for my kids, I see one of them doing something that I told them not to do, I like to just walk into the room and just stand there and watch until they recognize I'm there. I'll just sit there and I'll watch them keep doing whatever they're doing because it's really comical to me whenever they see me. All of a sudden, they act like they weren't doing what they really were doing, or they look at you a certain way, or everything about it changes, because why? Because they're aware that you're in the room. Friends, hear me. God is always in the room. No matter where you are, no matter what you are doing, you never escape God's presence. The issue with us is we forget about his presence. We lose our awareness of God which leads us not to worship him, not to obey him, not to follow him like he calls us to. I would say it to you this way. One of the most significant missing pieces in the lives of Christians today is this. We do not fear God like we should. If you fear God, you will not be apathetic. I promise you. If you fear God, you will not be indifferent to him and his mission. Whenever you know, you'll have to stand before him one day and give an account for what you've done in this life. When you fear God, you will listen to him. You won't stop listening to him. Whenever you fear God, you will come to him in repentance, recognizing that each and every day, yes, we fall short, but God's grace is even more. It's an odd and strange thing to me that if you were to ask a typical Christian, what have you repented of lately? Few people seem to have an answer. Is it because we forget that we are in God's presence, that we start looking at our lives through our own eyes rather than through God's? We have an overconfidence in ourselves whenever we forget about God's presence, the fear of the Lord. Talk about misplaced priorities. We've been talking a lot about money. Friends, hear me. Whenever we don't fear the Lord in our finances, we will spend our money however we feel like doing it. Remember I said last week we'll give sufficiently and then we'll live extravagantly and we'll think nothing of it versus giving extravagantly and living sufficiently. It's interesting, it's hard for us to recognize one day you and I will stand before God and he'll say he will hold us accountable for what we did with what he blessed us with. Whenever you keep that in mind, 
the presence of God in mind, an awareness of the fear of God, standing before him one day, it changes the way you live, does it not? Awareness of God changes everything. You want to know how you know is after 16 years of doing nothing, this made them perk up and change. 16 years of doing nothing, then they become aware that God's the one who's been behind all of it, and immediately they seek to obey him. So they obey the Lord and they are fearful of him, which leads back to the question I want you to see in this text this morning. What happens when God's people obey him? What happens? I'll show you three points in this. Verse 13. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. Friends, I don't think you and I can really understand the sheer grace in that one statement. I am with you. The people who had been rebelling for 16 years, the people who this text tells us they're living in adorned, comfortable houses while the temple, the place of worship, is just a foundation. And because they repent and they turn, they seek to obey him, God says, I am with you. What's even more incredible about this is if you don't know this, friends, don't miss, the temple is not present amongst the people of God. Before Jesus got here, there was one place God said, I will dwell among you. It's inside of the temple. In other words, if there is no temple for God's people, there's no opportunity to meet with God, to be with God. The temple was the avenue to do that. And yet God says, temple or no temple, I am not somebody who lives in a house like human beings. I am God, and I am with you. What happens whenever God's people obey? The first thing we see is this. We experience his presence. What happens whenever God's people obey? We experience his presence. In Haggai, God was not working with his people while they were living in disobedience and focusing on themselves. Rather, you see, he's disciplining them. You see, he's actively working against them, against the crops, against the comforts, against their wages. And what we see very quickly is obedience to God and God's presence go hand in hand. In other words, we will experience God's presence whenever we actively seek him. But whenever we don't, we will not. Friends, this is a truth we see all throughout God's word. Old Testament, New Testament, Jeremiah 29, 13. He says, come, seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you. James 4, 8, he says, draw near to me, and you can bet on it. I will draw near to you. In other words, you must be actively seeking God to experience his presence in your life. Now, I understand some people will respond back, Merrick, God never leaves us or forsakes us. God is always with us. And I would tell you, you're absolutely right. God doesn't leave us or forsake us. He doesn't turn his back on us, but that doesn't mean we can't turn our back on him. That doesn't mean we stop feeling his presence because we aren't pursuing him. I'm sure all of you have heard the story before of the old farm couple or in their little single cab. I won't say Chevy or Ford or Dodge. I know there's all sorts of people and they'll get mad at me, but the single cab truck, they're riding down the road and the wife's just quiet. Which, husbands, there's your sign. If she's not talking to you, he leans over and he says, babe, what's wrong? No, 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 whatever. And 
says, what, what's wrong? She said, I just don't feel like we're as close as we used to be. And he says, well, what do you mean? She goes, like, just for instance, right now, we used to sit snuggled up whenever we rode down the road. To which the husband said, sweetie, I'm not the one who moves. You can sit in the middle seat anytime you want to. You're the one who sits in the passenger seat. Friends, hear me. Y'all have heard this before, I'm sure. It's the same with us. If you don't feel the presence of God in your life, it is 100% not because of him. It is because of you. It is not because for some reason God has forsaken you. Maybe, just maybe, it's because you have forsaken him. Maybe you've started placing your priorities on yourself in your own way and doing your own thing. Because what we see is if we pursue his presence, actively seeking him, we will feel a closeness to God that is unexplainable through trials, through difficulties, through good times, through bad times. How do you think you feel the peace that surpasses all understanding? Well, you're pursuing God in the midst of the trouble, and you have a peace that doesn't make sense. How can you, as James 1 tells us, go through trials and tribulations and yet still feel the joy of the Lord in your heart because you feel his presence, because you still are actively seeking him? But the problem with the people here and often with us, the Israelites assumed that God was with them just because they were the people of God. It's odd to me that they didn't stop to think about maybe it's because of them that all this is going on. No, as the people of God, they just assumed that God was with them. They were content with the foundation of the temple, no longer pursuing him. Another relationship aspect that you see all throughout the Bible is this concept of marriage. And marriage is one of the greatest pictures that we have of us and God. Literally, the church is called the bride of Christ. And that's why marriage is, is so symbolic. That's why marriage is such a big deal. Is it's not just saying something about two people. It's saying something about God and his people. It's the chosen way he wants us to understand our relationship with him. Now, I want you to think about it. It's, it's oftentimes uh, funny to see that there are different phases in people who date and then people who get engaged. And then people who get married, you all know it, I all know it. The dating phase, you typically can tell whenever people are dating. You can tell whenever they're engaged. Just talk to them. That's all they want to talk about, the engagement, the wedding, right, that thing. Oftentimes you can tell newlyweds. But then there are different phases that come after that, right? If you've been married, you know what I'm talking about. There are different phases where you have to fight for your relationship, right? It is highly possible to be married and yet to feel distant. It's highly possible to be married and somehow live as functional roommates rather than husband and wife. And what's odd sometimes is even the people that are in that can say, we know that we are one. We know that as the husband, I'm supposed to be laying down my life for my bride. In other words, I will stop at nothing to take care of and love her. And the bride knows I'm supposed to follow him as he follows Christ, respecting his leadership as the leader in the home because God is the one who made it that way. But for some reason, we can know these things while experientially we don't live them out, right? There are times where we as a married couple, the point I'm trying to make is that we are one, but very much so, we're not experiencing that right now. Hear me, the foundation may be clear. We are one, but the experience may be very, very different. Hear me, hear me what I'm trying to say. Friends, much like the people there, we can do the same things in our relationship with Christ. Just as the people of God walked by the foundation over and over and over again and were content with that, believers can they, today can be content with the foundation of, I know that I'm saved, I know I have a relationship with Christ, and be content in that without pursuing Christ still. Friends, in a marriage, you must continue to pursue one another, right? 
in a relationship with God, you must do the same. You must continually pursue God in your life. And for some people, you can get into a spot where you know, I've repented, I've placed my faith in Christ, I'm a follower of his, but I'm just content with that. I'm not really living on purpose. I'm not really pursuing him. But hear me, these truths ring clear for us. You will not feel the presence of God in your life if you are not actively pursuing him. If you don't maybe say, maybe the reason why I feel so distant from the Lord is because of me, because I am the one who has stopped actively pursuing him. How does this relate in the Giving for His Glory campaign? Y'all, the reason that money is such a big deal, the reason money is talked about so much is because money, the way you spend your money is the greatest indicator of what you hold on closest to your heart. That's not me saying that. That's God's word saying that. You can't live for your money, live for the stuff, and live for God. You can't. You must choose one or the other. And for some of us, maybe the issue is because the way we spend our money, the way we utilize what God has blessed us with, maybe it's more of an indicator of what's going on in our heart. Hear me. If you are not honoring God with your time and your energy and your money, especially money because of how close it is to your heart, you will not feel close to him. But whenever you do actively pursue him, you will experience his presence in a way that's hard to even describe. So the question for you is, are you passionately pursuing the presence of the Lord in your life through worshipful obedience? Are you just content with the foundation? I know I'm a Christian. Are you pursuing him? Are you removing any obstacles that would choke out his presence in your life? Last thing I'll say about this is this matters corporately as well. The Bible is not primarily a book for you. It's a book for us. It's primarily a book corporately. That's why the vast majority of it is written to a people, not just a person. Friends, for us as a body of believers, for us as a church, the way that we pursue Christ matters. If we want God's presence to be among us, we as the church must be about what God wants us to be about. We must actively be pursuing the presence of God. In other words, coming back to the fear of the Lord and acknowledging him, whenever we come to church, we should not come acting like this is just a routine thing we do week in and week out. There's a reason that every week we stop and we spend the majority of our service by walking through God's word because we must acknowledge that God has spoken to us. And the pinnacle of every service is whenever we stop and say, God, what do you want to say? What do you want to say to us? Whenever we don't do that as a church, friends, it affects our church as large. And so the question for us, not just personally, but even corporately, are you coming to church as a body of believers? Are you pursuing Christ in the midst of other people? Are you passionately pursuing the presence of the Lord as a follower of Christ in a local church? We must if we desire to experience God in our lives. The first we experience his presence. Notice what's next, verses 14 and 15. It says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And just as a reminder, this, this book began on the first day of the month. And we see on the 24th day of the month, they came and they worked. So what happened for 24 days? Well, as Baptists, we know they had committee meetings. They took votes. They had presentations, I'm sure. Actually, we have no idea what they did for 24 days. 
But we know in that span is whenever they talked, they discussed. God stirred them up, and they began to do. I don't want you to miss this. Notice it says God stirred up Zerubbabel. He stirred up Joshua. He stirred up all the remnant of the people. Why? Because God does not call us to a work that he does not also equip us and stir us up to do. What happens whenever God's people obey? One, we experience his presence. Secondly, we experience his power. We experience his presence. And secondly, we experience his power. I read in an article this week, there was no author given to it. But they talk about the difference between the presence of God and the power of God. And I don't know if we understand that these two are separate, albeit together a lot of times. But I like the way he says this, God's presence is what steals our souls. And God's power is what stirs it. God's presence steals our souls. Feeling his presence steals us. But God's power stirs our hearts to go and to do. His power stirs us into action and empowers us to do what he calls us to do. What you see is God called them to rise up, build the temple, go get the wood, and do it. And then God stirred up their hearts in order to do it. I want you to see here, though, again, that the Israelites, they thought that because they were the people of God, that he would bless them. What you notice is whenever they obeyed, God stirred up their heart. God equipped them. He empowered them to do. An issue that I think we have today is we often presume that just because we have the Spirit of God in us, that obviously God is working in us. Friends, that's just not true. Now hear me because I want to be careful, but listen to what I'm saying. Just because you have the Spirit of God in you, it is not automatic that you will experience His effect. Just because you have God's spirit dwelling in you, it's not automatic that God will work through you. Why do you think we have in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul telling a group of believers, be filled with the spirit? Why would he call people to be filled with the spirit if the spirit was in them? Because there's a difference in the indwelling of the spirit and the filling of the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, he's telling people who are followers of Jesus, walk by the spirit. Why would he tell them walk by the spirit if the spirit was in them? Because this is a active thing that they must do we're called to yield to the spirit's influence in our life also we can do the opposite we can grieve the spirit in us we can suppress the spirit in us so hear what i'm trying to say you can have the spirit of god in you and he not be working in you because you are not seeking to be obedient to him we must actively pursue the effects of the spirit in our lives this is a active pursuit I love the way one author says it. He says, to walk in the Spirit means that we yield to his control. We follow his lead, and we allow him to exert his influence over us. Notice how active all of that is. We yield, God, your way, not mine. We follow his lead. Show me what to do, and I'll do it. We allow him to exert his influence over us. All of those things are active. Here comes the problem that the people had here, and I think we can struggle with as well. We often seek to walk in comfort and security rather than in obedience. Hear that again. God's people weren't building of the temple, and they had their excuses. They had their reasons, but ultimately it came down to it was going to be work. What was most comfortable was to work on their houses. What was most easy was to dwell in their secure places rather than to get up and to obey the Lord. 
I said this last week, it's hard to, we cannot pull back and build our little kingdoms while also trying to build the kingdom of God. We must follow his will, and we must always do this by faith. It's not easy. But if we seek our own good, we'll never experience the Spirit's power in our lives. If you hear nothing else, hear this. The Lord will not empower us to build our own little kingdoms. He will only empower us as we seek to build his. The Lord will not empower us. You will not feel the effects of the Spirit working in your life if you are seeking to build your own little kingdom. You will only experience it as you seek to build up his. And just as God called them to labor, friends, he calls you and me to labor. For them, he says, build up this temple. It's this physical temple. For us, he says, you're like living stones helping build up the spiritual temple of God. Make disciples. I'm with you to be with you. My presence is with you to help you. Be laborers in God's field, not just content with the foundation of salvation in Christ, but actively pursuing his presence and his power in your life. The last thing that I'll say about this before I go to the final point is this, is God's power can often be experienced in us for a short time, even whenever we aren't seeking after his presence, but it will run out. Let me explain it to you like this. God's power and God's presence, it, it, it's unique how you see it can work in your life, how it works in people in, in the Bible. I'll explain it to you like this. So I had somebody that was in my office this week, and as I was talking to them, they talked about a period in their life, you know, they grew up and and they were in church, and they, they, they worshiped. They helped lead in several aspects. They were a strong leader in the church with which they were in. And then a significant change that happened in their life. And they said, man, it was hard to have that significant change to deal with all that was going on in my life. It took me some time until I got back, got back on my footing. And he made a comment that just resonated so well with me. He said, it's like somebody turned the fan off. In other words, the power got turned off, but, you know, it still spins for a little while, just slower and slower until finally it stops. Friends, for many of us in our lives, never we feel the void in our relationship with God, we think, let's go do. And hear me, you can do for a while, the fan can spin, but without staying connected to the presence of God, personally seeking him in devotion to him, in private worship to him, eventually the fan will stop. You'll run out of energy. What I found in my life, as I even have walked through this, early on in my Christian journey, I pursued hard after the presence of God. I was like, God, I just want you to, to work through me. Show me how the Spirit can work in my life. Now it's like that has shifted. Where now I feel like I can clearly understand where God wants me to go, what God wants me to do. But God often tells me, Merrick, you have to stop, be still, know that I am God. Worship me by yourself in closed doors, not just reading to check it off. Read it, worship me, pursue my presence, because without it, my power will run out. Friends, both of those matter, the presence of God and the power of God. We must actively pursue both of them. So what we see in Haggai 1, God rebukes his people, calls them to obedience. They obey. God blesses them with his presence and his power. There's one more interesting thing that I want you to note. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said this last week I talked a little bit about it, but in Ezra, we see how all of this plays out. I think there's an interesting thing in Ezra that is very encouraging for us and also illuminating to know what happens whenever God's people obey. So I'd ask you, turn to Ezra chapter 5. If you're not sure where that's at, go to Psalms and then go left. 
Go backwards past Job, past Esther, past Nehemiah, and you'll be at Ezra. In Ezra chapter 5, we see something that, that, hear me, I'm going to read a lot of this passage, and if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss it. But we see something in this text that is honestly incredible. You see, one of the things that I told you about is whenever God's people stopped building the temple, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons was because people around them were oppressing them. They were threatening them. I want you to see what happens whenever they decide they're going to build again. Ezra chapter 5, and let's let's look first at verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. One thing to note is, isn't it odd that two verses encapsulate all of what we see in Haggai 1? It makes you wonder how much of God's word, if he were just to write all of it out, how incredible the stories we would have. This is where we're at, verse 3. At the same time, Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, which is the area where Judah was, and Shathar Buzanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? What happens as they obey the Lord? People come to them and they start antagonizing them again. Not only do they say, who told you you could do this? But they say, give us the names of the people. What are they wanting to do? But look at verse 5. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. And then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Continue verses 6 and following. It says, this is a copy of the letter that Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Buzanai, and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and go finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. Now, first thing I want you to notice is, isn't it odd how people who were disobeying, how emboldened they are now in the Spirit to talk back to these people trying to make them stop? You see the boldness that the Spirit has brought about in them due to obedience as they walked in Him? But what they're basically saying is they're saying, hey, Cyrus is the one who said that we could do this. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but the whole reason that God's people were able to come back to the promised land is because a king named Cyrus took over Babylon And he told God's people, go back to your place, go back to Jerusalem, and rebuild your city. Rebuild all of it. And so he is telling them, or the leaders of Israel are telling Todd tonight, we're doing this because Cyrus told us that we could do it. Now, it's been 19 years to be exact since that edict was made. Cyrus made this in 539 B.C., 
He died in 529. There was another king in between him and Darius from 529 to 522 BC. There was another king, and then Darius became king in 522. And this is multiple years after that. So what Tatanai is trying to say is go back in the archives and find if Cyrus actually said this. See if what they're saying is true. Well, so King Darius actually sends people. They go back, they look, and they find exactly what the Israelites said. Now, I want you to see the point that I'm trying to make. Look at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is King Darius writing back to Tataniah. King Darius says, Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar, Bazanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild that, this house of God on its site. So we see he goes and he finds it and he tells them to stay away from them. But what I want you to see is what happens when God's people obey. Notice in verse 8 what happens next. Darius says, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Capital punishment was different then, right? Verse 12, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Friends, do you see what happens when God's people obey? Not only does, does he say, leave them alone, he says, whatever they need, give it to them. Notice the stuff that he's providing. If you go back to Haggai 1, it's some of the things that God has put a famine on. Now God is replenishing. Not only are they rebuilding the temple, but whatever they need, it is given to them. They can ask whatever they want from Tatanai, and he must give it to them. What's the point I'm trying to make? Is whenever God's people obey, he gives them his presence, he gives them his power, but you finally get to experience his provision in your life. Whenever you step out in faith and say, God, I will obey you, whatever that is, you will experience provision, and you'll have a story like this <laughs> that you won't even be able to understand. Friends, God is a God of his word. He does not make promises that he does not back up. And as we talked about this last week, God says, honor me with your money. Put this in any other area. Honor me with your time. Honor me with your energy and see, see if I don't provide for you. Now, I'm sure this was not at all in the way they thought it would happen, but it was probably better. God makes even their enemies be at peace with them. Friends, don't you want to experience things like this in your life? You can. The same God of Ezra 5 is the same God today. I love the way one professor, Jim Shaddix, puts it this way. He says, look at this text and see what happens whenever God's people say, Lord, count me in. The question is simply this, is that your heart's posture? Can you say, Lord, count me in? Whatever that means, I will do it. Will you trust God? Will you follow his will? Will you trust him to provide 
for you in ways you don't even expect? Will you honor him? Friends, specifically as we come to the final weeks of this Giving for His Glory campaign, the goal is not to build a worship center. The goal is not to build more buildings. The goal is not to do it. The goal is to honor God with our possessions to make him a priority. He tells us that if we do that, he will provide for us. He will show himself to us. The question I leave you with is this. Do you desire to experience God's presence, God's power, and God's provision in your life? If so, that will only occur as you obey him, walking in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. God, we praise you because you are the same God who did all of this in the book of Haggai. God, due to your people's disobedience, you could have sent them back out into exile again and cast judgment on them again, but in your grace, you did it. Instead, you showed them yourself. And Father, for us, we all deserve your judgment, but in your grace, you gave us Jesus. And Father, through a relationship with him, Lord, you allow us to know you, to experience you, to experience your presence and power and provision in our lives. Father, the question is, is do we have faith in you? Are we walking in that? Do we trust you? Are we honoring you? Father, help us now as we move into a time of response. Lord, help us respond as you prompt our hearts to do so. We ask all this in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. As we get ready to stand and sing together, I want to just ask you a few questions for you to ponder. The first is this, is do you have the foundation of Jesus Christ in your life? You can't build on a foundation that you don't have. See, for many of us, the emptiness in serving or the emptiness in other ways, that emptiness is there because we don't have the presence of God in our hearts. It's because we've never repented and placed our faith in Christ. That is the first part. Do you have the foundation of Jesus in your life? If not, will you repent and place your faith in him this morning? But secondly, I'd ask you, if you say, Merrick, I know I have a relationship with Christ. He's the foundation of my heart. I would ask you, are you content with just having the foundation? Are you actively pursuing the presence of God in your life? Or are you just content with being a believer? Are you actively pursuing the effects of the Spirit in your life? Or are you just content? Are you doing one while neglecting the other? Sometimes we may be good at pursuing God's presence privately, but we're not obeying Him outwardly. Or vice versa, we may be seeking to obey Him and to serve Him outwardly, but our personal time with Him, there is none of it there. Are you actively pursuing His presence and His power in your life? Which leads to the last question. Are you being an obedient laborer for the kingdom of God? Do you recognize that you are a part of making disciples, that you are a part of God's desire to bring his kingdom here to earth? Are you using your time, your energy, and your resources for that? Brayden and I will be up here if you want to come respond this morning. Maybe you just want to stay seated during the, the, the song. I want to challenge you, however you need to respond to the Lord this morning, please do so now.